Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. There it is. Hi, my name is Elisa Minkin. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association Preventative Health Podcast. I am a general pediatrician and a proud JOMA member, and I'm super excited and honored to be here today with Dr. Stephen Shore. Hi. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Great to be with you today. Thank you. So Dr. Shore was diagnosed with what was called atypical development and strong autistic tendencies, which would definitely be autistic spectrum disorder by today's criteria. And he was called too sick for outpatient treatment. Dr. Shore was recommended for institutionalization, non-speaking until four, and with much support from his parents, teachers, wife, and others, Stephen is now a full-time professor at Adelphi University and adjunct at New York University Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development, focusing on aligning best practice in supporting autistic people to leading fulfilling and productive lives. I wanna just take a second to point out that you said autistic people. Um, There's been a lot of talk about saying the disability second, and I think that it's meaningful that you use the word autistic people and it's going to be something we're going to focus on. Okay. That sounds Um, good. mm -hmm. In addition to working with children and talking about life on the autism spectrum, Stephen is an internationally renowned educator, consultant, and author on lifespan issues pertinent to education, relationships, employment, and self-advocacy. His most recent book, College for Students with Disabilities, combines personal stories and research for promoting success in higher education. A current board member of Autism Speaks, the Organization for Autism Research, the American Occupational Therapy Foundation, President Emeritus of the Asperger Autism Network, and Advisory Board Member of the Autism Society. Dr. Shore also serves on the advisory boards of AANE. What's AANE? AANE is the Asperger Autism Network. Okay. Yes, you mentioned that before. I mentioned that. And other autism-related organizations. Wow. So... I did a podcast that was released two weeks ago on autism spectrum disorders, and it was from a medical point of view. I did it with a pediatric neurologist. And now I would like to talk with you from a more personal perspective. It's interesting that one of the comments on our podcast was actually by a woman who herself has autism, has children on the spectrum. And she said, on the one hand, she was happy to hear a relatively positive, informative um, podcast on autism, and we definitely continue to need more awareness, but she said, we need to hear autistic voices, and again, autistic first, right? Um, So I think that we'll start with your personal story and the lessons, go on to the lessons we can learn, how to help our autistic family members reach their potential, how to understand autism better, and to understand both the struggles and the strengths of people on the spectrum. So we can start, I want to give you all that at once, we'll just start with your story. That's okay. All right. All right. Well, that's good because uh, uh, sometimes when I give a presentation, actually often when I give a presentation, somebody will ask me a three or four part question. 
And I tell them, well, let's answer the first part and then we'll get to the others instead of mm -hmm. all at once. So a little bit about my story. Uh, the things were pretty typical for me for the first uh, 18 months. And then I was struck with what I call the regressive autism bomb. And like with 30% of us on the spectrum, I lost functional communication, had meltdowns, withdrew from the environment. And in short, I became a very autistic little kid. There was so little known about autism in those days that it took my parents a year to find a place for diagnosis. And when they finally did, now it's age uh, two and a half, the doctor said they'd never seen such a sick child and they recommended institutionalization. But fortunately, my parents, like we see so many parents today and in ever increasing numbers, uh, they advocated on my behalf and they convinced the school to take me in about a year. And it was during that year that my parents implemented what we would today refer to as an intensive home-based early intervention program. And this was a program that emphasized music, movement, sensory integration, narration, and imitation. It probably looked like one of the more developmental approaches we have today, such as uh, floor time as developed by Stanley Greenspan, or Miller Method, or uh, relational development intervention. I also see some aspects of daily life therapy that is practiced at the Boston Higashi School in there. Uh, but really what it was, was just parents desperately trying to reach their kid uh, because the concept of early intervention didn't even exist. So what did they do? Well, first they tried to get me to imitate them. Imitation is a time-honored educational strategy. Everybody does it in some way or another, but perhaps due to a difference in mirror neurons for autistic individuals, especially when young, uh, that piece may be missing. So when I didn't imitate my par parents, they flipped it around and imitated me. Wow. And once they did that, I became aware of them in the environment. And then they were able to move me along. So I think the key implication is that uh, you have to meet the person where they are. Mm -hmm. And that's a prerequisite before doing any, doing authentic and positive work with an autistic individual. And I think that happens to be true for everybody else as well. It's just with autism, some, of the, some things you may have to do will be a little bit more focused and more intense. So with the work that my parents did, speech began to return at age four. And I entered the school that initially rejected me. I got reevaluated. Instead of being considered as psychotic and ready for an institution, I got upgraded to neurotic. So things are moving up in the world. We often hear about highly focused interests of individuals on the spectrum. And my first was at age four. I was found by my parents taking apart a watch with a sharp knife. I pop open the back and extract the motor. I take out some of the gears, spin them around, and then put it all back together again. The watch still worked, and there weren't any pieces left over. So what is interesting to consider is how could I have the fine motor control to take apart a watch, not even using the right tools and spinning these tiny little gears, but I was a complete flop when it came to penmanship, which also requires fine motor control. So neurology may have some answers, occupational therapists 
may have some answers. What this also tells us is that there are sharp lines of demarcation between the abilities that autism gives us, which are plenty, and the challenges that autism gives us, which are also plenty. And I like to focus on the abilities. What can the autistic person do? That's what we need to ask. Now that said, the challenges are really there. They can be significant. If they didn't exist, then we wouldn't be here trying to figure it out. So we must be realistic about them. Can I say something for just a minute? I mean to interrupt you. Yeah. <laughs> I think another important piece here, and I, I say it in every you know talk that I, I mention autism, that I have a daughter on the spectrum, so I'm familiar. I think motivation is a big piece too. Like you said, if you have a special interest, you may be able to do something that requires the same skills as a, another task that is not at all interesting. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And uh, there's ways to go about it. So uh, speaking of using special interests, or highly focused interests, mm -hmm. uh, there's two ways that people seem to go about it. Uh, one way is better than the other. Uh, so let us suppose we have a grade school child uh, on the spectrum who's not motivated to do math. Maybe they're not good at it. Maybe they've had some bad experiences, whatever. The motivation is just really low. It's just not there. So we bring in a behavioral consultant. The consultant does an invent interest inventory. And we find that the child is really fascinated with, uh, perhaps even lives for, coming home and using a flight simulator on the computer. So now we've identified a very powerful reinforcer. And a plan might be drawn up where if you do your math for 20 minutes, you can get the remaining 10 minutes on the flight simulator. And in that way, uh, the attraction of the focused interest will serve as a motivator to get through something you don't really want to do, you'd rather not do. Uh, however, that's kind of working against the characteristics of autism as opposed to with. So if we accept the characteristics and one of those, one of those characteristics are highly focused interests, passions, perhaps deeper than most other people have. So let's find a way to use a flight simulator to teach mathematics. Mm. Now mathematics is going to become much more interesting because there's a lot of math involved in flying airplanes. So that's, uh, that's how I like to look at those highly focused interests. They, you can think of them as levers or entryways to, highly, to uh, uh, doing things uh, to provide motivation for things that you maybe would not rather do. So that's, uh, uh, that's working with the characteristics of autism, one of that, the specific one being highly focused interests. So back to my situation, um, taking apart those watches, my parents noticed me doing that. And soon they provided all kinds of other devices to take apart and put together. So they were in tune with what my interests were. So when I was interested in astronomy, we got a telescope and we'd stay up late and look at the sky through the telescope. When I was collecting seashells, uh, we organize them in boxes and find their Latin names and write them down and then glue the shell into the, into the box. So they seem to be involved. From my point of view, they would seem to be interested in everything I was interested in. 
You you were actually in a school at this point, though, right? So age four, it was a special school. Mm -hmm. By age six, it was regular school kindergarten because speech had pretty much come back. And uh, however, that was really challenging. Mm -hmm. That was a social and academic catastrophe. You know what happens to kids who are different in grade school? Uh, but unfortunately, school systems are beginning to realize that bullying is not a developmental phase that people need to go through. But something should be done about it. Uh, school systems in New York and in most other states in the U.S. are now required to submit anti-bullying programs to the State Department of Education on a regular basis. Academically, I was usually about a grade behind in most of my subjects. Most of my elementary school days were spent going to the library, getting books on all my favorite subjects, such as earthquakes, space exploration, volcanoes, electricity, mechanics, many other things. And I'd read them and take notes, copy diagrams. And then when I was done with all this stack of books, I'd put them away and get books on something else. Sometimes I'd even wonder if there was more to school than just reading my favorite books, which I was really happy to do, but shouldn't I be doing math in groups or reading in groups or something like that? And I think what it translated to is that teachers didn't quite know how to reach me but since I wasn't a behavior problem, they just left me to my own devices. And back then, there was so little known about special education and certainly not much known about autism that it was probably for better rather than for worse. Right, that's what I'm thinking. That's why I asked. Yeah. Because your parents gave you this individualized education geared to your interests with the right. In you, which I think are the core of a successful program, just try to get that even today, right. even with a diagnosis. Right. Yeah, diagnosis or not, it's working through interests, uh, working through abilities, and then finding ways to create strategies and accommodate for the challenges, which are presenting barriers to success. So uh, uh, when I was in school, as I mentioned, handwriting was a disaster. If, you know, one of the worst things I could experience in school would be to walk into a room with a paragraph on the board because that meant we were probably going to have to copy it down. And by the end of the period, I had gotten through a few words and everybody else had gone to recess. Now today we understand that some people just don't have the neurological or physical ability to write quickly or neatly or maybe not even at all. And we have many accommodations for students to get their words out, whether it's text-to-speech. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's even uh, typing on a keyboard. For many of us autistic people, typing is faster and easier than writing by hand. But they didn't know about such things in those days. So then we zoom up to middle school. You don't need to be autistic to have difficulties in middle school. But mm -hmm. it was actually easier for me. I was in middle and then later on in high school, I figured out two things. One is, was using words instead of sound effects from the environment really helped with social interaction, <laughs> helped improve communication. And secondly, I was able to engage in one of my focused interests. In this case, it was music. So I joined the band and I now had a structured activity in which to mediate my interactions with others. And I got so taken up with music that I got it into my autistic head 
that I need to learn how to play all the instruments, every last one of them. So that meant hours in the instrument closet, figuring out how the instruments work, taking them apart, sometimes recombining two or three instruments into contraptions that should never have seen the light of day. And while I didn't learn all the instruments, I did get it up to about 15. And then I heard from somewhere that a requirement for a degree in music education was that you had to learn all the instruments. So that just seemed to be the way to go, which is what I did for my bachelor's. School was a university was utopia, no more bullies, more interesting courses. So that was my bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. And then when I had finished all the coursework for my doctorate, autism started becoming more interesting. So then I defected to the School of Education and got my doctorate in special education. And it was at this point where I had already written my autobiography and a couple of other books. I was traveling around the country and then eventually around the world talking about autism. And I got through my doctorate in special ed at, in February of 2008, and then had applied for a job at Adelphi University uh, shortly thereafter. And during the, uh, during the uh, interview process, uh, uh, oh, I think they had already hired me by then. But then I realized that if I started in the fall of 2008, which is pretty standard for academia, you start in the fall. Mm-hmm. I realized that I had so many presentations around the world, including two around the world trips, that I would be absent from my classes more than I would be present. And that's probably not a good way to start as a professor. So I asked them if we could delay the start until January 2009. They said, fine. And that's exactly what I did. I've been there ever since. And now I divide my time between teaching and researching at the university, Adelphi University, uh, these days virtually because of the pandemic. So I'm actually at home in Boston, uh, traveling around the world. I got it to a point where I was traveling to a different country about once a month before the pandemic hit. So I'd been to 51 countries across six continents, uh, a number of them several times, talking about autism. And now I'm still presenting in different countries. Uh, however, now it's all online, just like we're doing now for this podcast. Uh, other activities. <laughs> Disadvantages. I wouldn't be able to get you in person. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, you normally are right close by on Long Island. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as a, um, as a board member of Autism Speaks, um, I often meet with the vice president of research, Andy Shee. And he has a crazy travel schedule like I do. So even though he lives in Manhattan, just a mere 25 miles away, we see each other more often at conferences in far corners of the earth than we do in New York. So that's how crazy things are. And plus researching and writing books on autism and giving music lessons to children on the spectrum. So that's what I'm doing now. That is so amazing. And it's such an incredible journey. I want to try to see what lessons we can offer to people listening. Um, I think there are so many. I mentioned before um, the word autistic first, um, and right. you, you used it as well. And I want to just talk for a few minutes about why, why are we doing that? What kind of 
um, viewpoint are we conveying by using the word autistic first? Because, you know, the general idea is, well, don't call them autistic. Don't call them by the disability. Call them a person with autism. Right. And, uh, you know, and as a, as a medical professional yourself, as a doctor, uh, you don't refer to people, you don't refer to the uh, kidney in room 103 and to the heart in room 86 and to the stroke in room whatever. You, know, you don't do that. And that was extended to people having disabilities. And this was also at a time when having a disability had a huge amount of stigma as mm -hmm. well. So why was it then several years ago, as I was getting involved in the autistic community, that there was this collection of people referring to themselves as autistic people, not as people on the autism spectrum. So I thought this was worth discussion. And I got about 100 people on the spectrum in a room. And the room didn't explode either. It actually was pretty good. And we had that discussion. Should we use person-first language? or identity first language. Although that term didn't exist yet, so I called it condition first language, but it had the same idea. And there was a lot of good discussion. And one person said that autism affects everything I do. If you were to remove autism, I'd be a different person. So I'm an autistic person. It's not all I do, all I am, but it does affect everything I do. Somebody else said, Autism is also an integral part of who I am. It's not something that I could put into a bag, put on the table, and hopefully not forget my bag of autism when before I leave. Mm -hmm. And somebody else said, well, I prefer to be recognized as a person who happens to have something. That was a person first link person. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else said, uh, well, if we uh, think of autism as an expression of the diversity of the human gene pool, and the autistic person is just as much as a, as a person, as someone who isn't. And by the way, I've never heard of anybody, uh, anybody uh, describing themselves as being with Americanism or with Israelism, right. with Judaism or with Canadian, Ism, but they just are, and we just are. So it went back and forth like that for quite a while, and then we voted, and the vote came down to about eighty percent in favor of condition first, which we now call um, identity first language. And then we wrote up a proclamation which said, most of us prefer identity first language. There are some who prefer person first, so we'll try not to have a meltdown if you use the one we don't use. And when in doubt, just ask the person. Right. It's so interesting because, and I have to, I have to take a step back. Okay. I think I really need to yeah. say something first. It's really, really important that your line that has gone viral, so to speak. Um, I think it's the most used line possibly about autism is if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Right. Incredibly, incredible diversity within the, the world of people with autism or autistic people, depending on <laughs> which you prefer. So there's tremendous diversity. And I, I feel the need to be sensitive to all the parents of children on the spectrum who are struggling tremendously. For some, it's very offensive because they want their child to be happy and function. And this identity talk about autism is very painful for them. So I yeah. want to acknowledge their viewpoint. But on the flip side, 
or a person who wants to be described as an autistic person, he's saying, don't take my identity away. Don't try to make me somebody I'm not. And when you're talking about helping a person with autism, you want to help them be the best they can be. You don't necessarily want to cure them. Now, again, back to parents, there are parents who do want to cure their kids. Right. And now who, what parent would not want to, let, let's suppose they have a child mm -hmm. where, and it's a child with autism, an autistic child, however we want to express it. And this is a particular child with very high support needs. They have not developed a reliable means of communication yet. So they're having meltdowns all over the place because they can't express their wants and their needs. This is a child that might have some medical co-occurring conditions such as, a, uh, such as um, intolerance to foods containing gluten and casein. So their digestive tract is a royal mess, at least until they can figure that piece out. You might have someone who has such sensory issues, they cannot bear to remain in their skin. So what parent would not want to eliminate these challenges and maybe misattribute those challenges to being all what autism is. So let's just get rid of this whole thing, this autism thing, it's making a mess out of my child. And uh, sure, Einstein might've been autistic, Temple Grandin is autistic, they seem to be doing fine. Uh, my child isn't doing fine. So I wanna get rid of it. So it's understandable uh, the feelings that parents would have. Right, I agree. I think though that it might be helpful to frame it as I want my child to function as best they can. I want them to feel as best they can. I want to help. It's so important as a parent to advocate for your child. Like oh, yeah. have the doctor say, okay, well, they're autistic. Autistic kids cry more. They don't sleep as well. No, they might have gut problems like you said. Um, but to love the child you have. Right. Child and accept and acceptance is a pass. You know, it, it, it's a process acceptance mm -hmm. right so i can certainly understand that as a parent you don't get the diagnosis and have acceptance snap in there's those kubler ross right oh yeah yeah the five uh, stages. Anger, bargaining and by the way they're not the idea that they're sequential is not true they're constantly going back and forth right so you can have all of these feelings and it's normal um but i i like the idea of a kind of middle ground rather than being pure identity you know i remember i took my daughter once to a doctor and she was very angry because they had an article in the, I think it was the New York Times about a group of people with autism that were what they called proudly low functioning. They're like, we're not toilet trained, we don't care. I mean, they were saying to a parent that's horrifying and, and to a neurologist, she was horrified. Yeah. Like, What's with that? I don't know what happened to them. I never heard from it again, but I think there's a balance between fighting for your child to be the best they could be, but not wanting them to be somebody they're not and accepting who they actually are, which may be autistic. It's not, right. it's not a cancer that you have to eradicate. Right. I think, and right. I think it's really important to say. Yeah, so um, uh, just uh, uh, amplifying what, what you said, uh, we have a choice. We can either um, uh, have a goal of making the autistic child a poor imitation of a non-autistic person, mm -hmm. or we can help that person be the best autistic person they can be. Now, how would that be? Because it's interesting, the parent who said about hearing autistic voices said, you know, some therapies are more damaging than helpful. Right. Specify? Yeah, I mean, we can't uh, we, we can do that. And uh, look at ABA, which is the oldest 
in most practice therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, however, the core uh, tenet of ABA, at least used to be when developed by Eva Lovas and for quite some time, was to have children become indistinguishable from their peers. So erasing the autism and making them normal for lack of better terminology. Uh, ABA is the only approach I know where there are autistic people who have developed a sort of post-traumatic stress syndrome as a result of misapplied ABA. So ABA stands for Applied Behavioral Analysis, and it's a way to shape That's behaviors, but I think it's been modified over time. Originally, I think they even had punishment if you didn't do the behavior. They had like aversives. Yeah, yeah. Well, at its simplest explanation, ABA is operant conditioning. Mm -hmm. So shaping behaviors by using rewards, reinforcements, and punishments. And these days, it's much, much fewer punishments are being, are being used. Uh, they're not using cattle prods anymore. They're not using electric shock therapy anymore. Uh, although they might be doing that still in Massachusetts at the Judge Rottenberg uh, Center. Oh, don't say uh, that. Uh, I can't. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's terrible. Um, oh, I thought that was a while ago. Yeah, but there's still, uh, there seems to be protests every year and uh, somehow it still keeps going. Wow. But I yeah. think ABA now, the way it's usually used now, is to break down a behavior that for someone on the spectrum who may have trouble, like you said, you couldn't imitate. We don't we take for granted people who are neurotypical that you can just imitate a behavior. Right. Something like putting on your pants may be broken down into multiple steps and reinforced. You may not be able to get airplanes involved in putting on your pants. I mean, you might, yeah. <laughs> or you can mix yeah. them together. You can have your interests reinforced. So anybody who's doing ABA, please don't get mad at us. We're not trying to rip into ABA here. No, no, not at all. And uh, I think an important thing to keep in mind is that ABA has changed a lot mm -hmm. um, since its inception. I know many people, uh, many ABA practitioners who take into account sensory issues, development, and all kinds of things. And unless they told you they were an ABA practitioner, you'd probably mistake them for a developmental practitioner. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so it's not to uh, bust up ABA. Right. Uh, and another aspect is a thing to consider is that because ABA um, is so widespread and it's the most popular, uh, there's also much greater chance of bad ABA being practiced. It's always uh, true that bad therapy can be worse than no therapy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, yeah, really can be. Right. But I think the idea of respecting the person with autism, respecting where they are, like your parents did, using right. their interests to motivate them and not just expect it to be like a carrot in front, you know, like a simple yeah. piece of cookie motivator, you know, to right them as an individual, I think that that is the more of the current approach and also focusing on abilities, not just disabilities. And this is, by the way, for everyone. Everyone has some disabilities and some abilities. No one is perfect. Right. And I think a good thing to keep in mind is that in education, we often think about these strategies that we develop for students on the autism spectrum. And they initially often initially begin as these expensive in terms of time and resources to develop. Uh, however, what I find is that strategies developed for children on the spectrum 
also tend to be good for everybody else. Mm -hmm. So often we talk about visual supports. Well, everybody could benefit from diagrams. We talk about uh, making sure the environment is sensorially friendly with lighting and with uh, sound and other aspects of the environment. Everybody likes good lighting and everybody likes a quiet place to study. That's really, really true. And it, it's a good segue to um, helping find a good educational program for your child. I'm thinking about how there's more of a trend now to um, inclusion, mm -hmm. and not just not just straight inclusion where they're just plopped in a class with neurotypical kids, but more of a um, co-teaching type of right. Um, which I think is really important because I think if you just plop a child with a lot of special needs in a regular class, even if you give one-to-one -one aid, they may not be getting the specialized approach that they needed. Yeah, that's right. So successful inclusion requires sufficient support. Mm -hmm. So just throwing a child uh, with a difference, with a disability, and into an inclusion setting is a setup for disaster. Mm -hmm. And inclusion, just like autism, is also a spectrum. So some students can be included 100% of the time with some supports. Others, maybe only certain classes, they could be included. Others, there may only be one class a week where they're included for part of it. And then there are others where the public school system is just not able to provide the supports that are needed. And that's what separate schools are, are good for. I mean, ideally, we should have 100% inclusion right. all the time. But, and it's a good thing to work towards. But there are times when we just have to bring a child to a place that can provide them more support, a more restrictive setting, as the terminology would mm -hmm. put it, and also have a plan at the same time. What is the plan to get that child back into an inclusive situation? Right, because the law now is the child needs to be in, like you said, the least restrictive environment, the most natural, which would be, say, the community school and the, you know, in the child's right. community. Not all kids can be. Um, and I think it's also important to distinguish. I hate the terms high functioning, low functioning autism. I don't know. Oh, how yeah, you that's horrible, too. Yes. Despise it. it. It's terrible because there are some um, people with autism who are nonverbal and yet they're very high functioning. <laughs> they do great. They manage mm -hmm. to communicate, they manage to hold down a job, they manage to be socially appropriate. And then there are those who are extremely verbal um, and have tremendous mental health and or behavioral challenges and cannot function. You know, even with tremendous support, they're going to need to be in a self-contained specialized program. They're just going to need to be. You can't, even if you have an aid, it's not just a matter of keeping the child in the room it's so that child can learn <laughs> right. that setting, right? So we need to add a phrase to least restrictive environment. Mm -hmm. And it's the least restrictive environment where the child can be successful. Right. And I think it's really important for parents to be honest here and open to hear what others are saying. I think you have to right. advocate for your child, which sometimes means being the squeaky wheel. The district may have to cough up more money and it's too bad. It's what your child needs. You're entitled right. to free, appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment. Free is part of that. Appropriate is part of that, but not perfect, by the way. Mm -hmm. But yeah. you also have to be honest with what your, where your child is holding. You know, I've seen it too many times where a parent laid support upon support upon support and the child wasn't learning. 
because it really wasn't appropriate. They needed something more restrictive. And so right. That's that's where it's good to get a private um, advocate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just can't do it by yourself, and and you know that the school district you know has a budget. Right. <laughs> Might be a top priority. It's it's yeah. true. Yeah, but you gotta that that child has to be given a free and appropriate public education, acronym being FAPE. Right. In the least restrictive environment. You know, I'm in yeah. the middle of watching a a 12 minute video that I'm four minutes into. <laughs> I should have finished um, on inclusion of a child with Down syndrome. Now, Down syndrome is not autism; it's it's a different disability. Right. Um, but what made me what made me take pause for that four minutes I watched um, is that whether a child is capable educationally of being in a mainstream environment, I think it's really important for social inclusion. So I think even if a child is in a self-contained program, you can advocate if that program is inside a mainstream school or say a lunch buddy, a recess buddy, something like that, um, so that they still get those social models because a striking part of your story was you had role models. You didn't tell how you learned social skills. I don't think it was from formal social skills classes. Yeah, yeah, they didn't exist. Right, and I don't know how effective they, they always are because I think that you know, one of the problems with, with autism is that it may be hard to generalize what you learn in one setting to the real life or another setting. So you may learn yeah, how that's to right. in your social skills class and then that's where it ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are not always so predictable like your teacher is in your social skills class. Um, right. Music. You can have a child who is not mainstream for anything but music. Yeah, that's right. And so parents advocate for your child. I think it's so important. It's important for the role models, even if they don't directly imitate. I think also for the expectation. I think one of the problems of self-contained special education is it's so easy to lower the expectations. Right. And for them not to see anybody striving beyond that. So the beautiful thing of this little five-year-old child with Down syndrome in a mainstream kindergarten was the expectations for her were sky high. Mm-hmm. And yet they were able to modify. They brought in special education teachers to, to educate her. And again, she didn't have any behaviors or sensory issues. Right. Or issues. She was socially a star. Mm. So, you know, that's why it's a different disability. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's very different. Uh, okay, are you at liberty to say what that video is? Uh, Ruby, something about Ruby's Rainbow. Okay, it sounds familiar. Um, it's, a it's, it's a couple years old. They started. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I might have seen it. There's also Educating Peter. Yes, that's a very old one. Yeah, it's a, it's a moldy oldie, but there's it's still a moldy good I remember actually watching it and being very upset. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like that one. I don't know how you felt about it. I didn't like it. Well, I think it's great for discussion in my special ed classes. Right. Okay. We're not going to. We're not going to go there. All right. right. That's an, That's another uh, podcast. That That's another whole podcast. Um, yeah. I think I'm actually going to end because I could talk to you all day, but I think that your story and some of the ideas we brought up. I'm going to just recap a little bit of some lessons that that I hear, which is believe in your child, accept your child for who they are right now, but believe in their potential right? Uh, Advocate for them, but advocate for for who they are, not for trying to make them into somebody that they're not, and work with their special interests. I think those are the lessons. If you have others and you want to add? 
Uh, well, I think the you know know who your child is and mm -hmm. work with their strengths. Mm -hmm. Use an abilities-based approach. Exactly. Ask what can the child do, mm -hmm. and then the challenges that they will have. Uh, let's view them as barriers that need to be overcome, worked around, or maybe even make a considered decision. Maybe this is just not worth it. So, for example, I find that I'm very low functioning in a noisy bar. Uh, just too much sound, too much noise, too much nonverbal communication. Now, I know that there are strategies that I could use to improve my functioning, you might say, in such a place. Ear protection. Learn more about nonverbal communication. I heard somewhere that if you take magnesium, it helps with hearing sensitivities. I don't know. Uh, or I could just decide I can lead a fulfilling and productive life, not going into noisy bars. Mm -hmm. The child who, mm -hmm. who, who fails the Walmart test. Right. Um, do you have to go into a Walmart to lead a fulfilling and productive life? Are there other ways that you can get what you wanted to get in Walmart, but maybe you can get somewhere else. Right. Or might you be able to slowly acclimate the child? It all depends on the child. Let's start with saying, we're gonna go into Walmart, we're going to get a bottle of milk, nothing more, nothing less, and you need to be predictable. You can't suddenly change your mind and say, oh, we need some spaghetti, so we're gonna go over here, and then over here, and that won't work. We're going to look in the airplane section too. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. I really oh, enjoyed talking to you. It's an amazing journey and I can't wait to hear more from you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.